Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning, whether you're here in person or watching at home. It's just great to worship with you, be with you this morning. I've noticed something in the church for the last few years, or actually a couple years maybe, and I've been talking to several different groups of people, and I have found that there's kind of three categories of people in the church right now. And I want to read through these categories, and I want you to think about which one best describes you. And maybe not everything in these categories, you know, is right or dead on, but which one 75% or so defines you. So category one would be this people who are clamping down on traditional Christianity, willing to fight for what they believe in. They believe the word of God is still true today and they're willing to take a stand to defend their God and their faith. They feel a sense of righteous indignation and are deeply concerned with the state of the world. They remember a day when Christianity meant living a set apart life. They desperately want the world to conform to the standards of God's word. They take hard stands, and the, the gospel is black and white to them. There is no gray. They stand for truth, even if it means having a little bit of division. The pros of this group of people are this. Their heart is desperately in the right Place. They value the word of God and they want the truth to prevail and they want to see people know Christ and live with a sense of morality. The cons of this group when looking back at it from maybe a worldly standpoint would be this, they can come across sometimes as angry or offensive to people who don't agree with them and sometimes they place a higher value on being right than on loving people or approaching each situation on an individual basis. So don't raise your hand, but what, uh, who would be in that group, do you think? Category two is this. People who have decided that the church has completely missed the heart of the gospel for the most part. They think that the church at large, the capital C church, has failed at loving people well, and they've placed more of a priority on being right than being loving. They feel too many evangelical Christians have used the word of God as a weapon instead of an agent of peace. They also feel like the evangelical church has mixed in too many American politics and Christianity together too often. They want to love and accept people, and they focus on those parts of the Bible. They find themselves disappointed in many Christians they observe. They don't believe the whole Bible is inspired by God, and they focus more on grace, love, and acceptance. They don't want to judge or be judged. They are open to mixing the truth of other religions into Christianity and exploring new ideas. That's group number two. And the pros of this group is that they value and love people well. They do that for pretty good. They don't mix a lot of tradition and Western philosophy into Christianity, and they tend not to be as materialistic as some other people can be. 
the cons of this group is they don't have the foundation of the Bible to build their worldview. They can appear to be chameleons blending in with the Christians they're around, blending in with the world they're around. That would be what I would consider category number two. And then category number three, and once again, this is just me observing and doing research and talking to people. Category three is this, people who are somewhere in the middle. You believe in the church, you believe in God, you believe in the word of God. However, your love for people has you confused about some of the hard passages in scripture that you can't quite wrap your mind around. You're in research and discovery mode trying to find answers. You may have been raised in a church with a legalistic background or a hyper-grace background, and now it's confused you later in life to know what really is true, what really is God's word, how does God really want me to live? You wanna love people, but you also don't wanna compromise your faith, and you tend to feel a little confused on how to do this well. The pros of this group is their heart is also in the right place. They are on a search for truth. They wanna find a balance of living in the truth of God's word, but also loving people really well. The cons of this group is they can appear to be wishy-washy on what they believe, and they can easily be swayed to one side or the other. So, which category would you say I mostly would find myself in category one, two, or three. And which category just irks you inside a little bit? You heard me talking and you're like, these people, I don't, I don't understand. There's way more cons than that, okay. Which one of those happens? And the reason I bring this up is because we're in a series And we're talking about the seven original churches, the first century churches that the book of Revelation talks about. And sometimes we feel like the world we live in today is so much different than the world back then, 2,000 years ago. And I wanna show you that not much has changed from what I just said, categories of believers today than was going back on 2,000 years ago when the book of Revelation addresses the church in Pergamum. And that's what I want to talk about, the church of Pergamum. Not to be confused with a pergola. Those are different. My wife had to tell, explain that to me. But Pergamum, that's what we're talking about today. It's found in Revelation 2, 12 through 17, and we are going to read what the Word of God has to say to the church of Pergamum. This is what the Bible says. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name, and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. 
In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. How many people, like, I could just say amen, you could walk out and feel like that was a good word right there this morning. Sometimes reading the book of Revelation is crazy. You're like, what did you just say? I literally read that 10 times in my prep trying to find something. I'm like, I've got to dig for some nuggets and figure out what all of this means. And you know what? I really did. When Pastor Tony first asked me to speak on this, I was a little concerned and I was a little nervous about it. But as I dug into this, I really enjoyed the study and the interpretation of what this passage is saying to the church of Pergamum, but also what it means to us today. So I want to give you some context this morning. Hang in there with me on this. Pergamum was about 50 miles north of Smyrna, which is what Pastor Tony talked about last week. And it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. More than any of the other seven cities, it intensely was serious about religious practices. In this part of the world, Pergamum was the center of worship for the four most important gods of the day. So the city had cults that worshiped Zeus, the chief Greek god, Athena, the god of wisdom and courage who led and protected those in battle, Dionysus, a nature god of fruitfulness and vegetation, and Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine. That's a mouthful in it of itself. All of those had important temples dedicated to them in Pergamum. In fact, that last god, Asclepius, we have a picture of him. This is Asclepius. And if you notice, what is that up on his staff? A snake, a serpent. Can you go to the next slide? This is also a picture of that God's um, staff. I believe this is one of the reasons why it's referred to as the place where Satan lives. Because if you study hermeneutics in the Bible, you have what's called the law of first mention. The law of first mention is when you see something in the Bible, you can assume if you see that later on, it's saying something similar. Snake in the Garden of Eden was representative of Satan. So when you see this, we can kind of put together that the place where Satan lives has a snake around the staff. On top of this, this was a place where all roads led to heaven. All these different religious practices, all these different religious uh, traditions were taking place. Some very, very weird religious practices and traditions, and it really was designed to breed confusion to Christians who on top of 
having these four temples to these other Greek gods when they're trying to serve Jesus. On top of that, Pergamum was a place where emperor worship was very much accepted and practiced. So on top of worshiping these other gods, you were also encouraged to worship the Roman emperor and bow down and light incense to him. So Pergamum would have been a very difficult place to be a born-again Christian, to hold to traditional Christian values, to live your life in a set-apart, moral way for Jesus. This would have been a very difficult place to live your life. And so the Christians there were trying to do their best And they even get a little pat on the back at the beginning. Because there was so many religious gods or religious things, practices in this city, he says, you know, in verse 14, I'm sorry, Jesus said, you know, I'm I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you for taking a stand. There's even been a martyr among you, and I'm proud of you for that. But then the word of God goes on to say, and I want to kind of go through the passage a little bit more. In verse 14, it says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So this is a reference to what some of the Israelites did not long before Moses died. In the wilderness, on the advice of the false prophet Balaam, King Balak of Moab used women of Moab to entice the men of Israel to come and take part in feasts which encouraged immorality in the name of religion. So this is what that passage of scripture is making reference to. And the church members in Pergamum were doing something very similar. They were joining in with the crowds who were worshiping false gods, and they were committing sexual acts with pagan priests and priestesses, all supposedly to honor their gods. And the Christians would make, they would justify this behavior, just like we do with some of our practices today. Christians would justify this behavior and say, well, Greater is he that is in me than in this world. So this isn't my God. This isn't really my practice. I'm a believer, so I can do this and it not affect me. Or they would also say things like, well, Jesus died for my past, present, future sins. So immediately after I partake in this, I'm going to be automatically forgiven. Grace abounds so I can partake without any repercussion. And this is what the word of God is speaking to and saying, no, that's not how, it, how it's supposed to be in Pergamum. That's not how it's supposed to be today. It, it's a call to morality. It's a call to live your life for Christ differently than the religious practices that are happening around you, even if it means persecution. That's what it was a call to. I mean, Paul even says it in Romans 6. He says, should I keep on sinning so grace may abound? Absolutely not. He speaks to this very practice of people who thought once Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that's it. We can just go crazy sinning because we're automatically forgiven. And that's where the hyper grace movement was birthed. Nothing new today. 
It was happening back then as well. And that's what I'm trying to tell you. These categories, these different things we find in the church, the divisions, the polarization, it's not new. It was happening. The same debates were happening back then like they are today. Then he goes on to say in verse 15, in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, let's... Let's define what the Nicolaitans were all about. This is what commentator Ralph Harris says about the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans encouraged the same kind of unrestrained indulgence without being involved in idolatry. It's clear that both took a wrong view of love and Christian liberty that leads to compromise of principles and a lack of moral restraints. The Nicolaitans lived their lives by their feelings, They didn't feel anything was wrong. If it feels good, do it. And that was being adopted by the church. Listen, don't judge me. I'm not going to judge you. Whatever you feel is right for you, just do it. It's fine. Let's cast off moral restraints. Let's cast them off. We don't need any kind of structure in our life. We don't need any kind of moral guidelines. That's taking away our freedom and our liberty. No, we're Christians and Christ died to give us freedom, which is the truth. But some people were taking their Christian freedom and liberty too far. And they're speaking, this is what the book of Revelation is speaking to. You've gone too far in it with it. Yes, you're free. Yes, you are not bound by a set of rules. You are not bound by 600 and somehow laws. You are not bound by religion. But to have the best Christian life possible, you need boundaries. You need some guidelines to live your life. Otherwise, when left to ourselves, we destroy ourselves. We will always choose the flesh if there's no moral restraint or boundary in our life. And this is a call to remember that here in the book of Revelation. Paul put it this way in Galatians. He said, you my brothers and sisters, you were created or called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. He goes on to say, so I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. And this sums up the new covenant. Is a life led by the spirit. The laws are written on our hearts. The Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth. He's our comforter, he's our counselor. He's the one who will guide us in all truth. We have the word of God coupled with the spirit of God in our life to lead us. And when we live by the spirit, we do not want the things of the flesh as much. Not saying we never want them, but we don't want them as much. And it's a call to live by the spirit. Because you know what? It's hard for God to protect us when we indulge in habitually destructive behaviors. I, hear, I talk to a lot of younger people who don't want to live their lives by any kind of moral restraints. And usually the reason is they grew up maybe in a legalistic church Christian home or maybe the Bible was smacked, <laughs> smacked them in the head a few times. But because 
Christianity was a bunch of do's and don'ts, now they have completely decided to live their life with no moral compass, no restraints. Jesus called me to be free, and I'm tired of people saying that I can't live my life the way I want to live my life. I hear this a lot, but here's the problem. Destructive habits will create baggage in your life that now you have to deal with. And God's trying to protect you from this. He's trying to give you the best life possible. And in order to have that life, it comes with making wise choices. In order to have, make wise choices, we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit coupled with some boundaries and moral restraints and guidelines in our lives. It's the same reason why if a kid was to run out into Ryan Road, we wouldn't say, oh, he's just free. Just let him be free. We would say, no, 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 that's dangerous. We want a long, prosperous life for you, so we don't want you running out in front of a bunch of cars. We're not trying to take his way his freedom, are we? We're trying to provide freedom. When I was a kid, my parents had some rules for me. And I wasn't always crazy about the rules of the house. There's just something in me that didn't really like following rules. I don't know why. I'm still kind of that way. But um, <laughs> I'm a human being, that's right. But I realize now and later in life that rules were set up to protect me and give me freedom. For instance, there was this one rule my parents had that I absolutely despised growing up. And it was this. You can't go to a friend's house if the parents aren't home. Oh, man. I would try to, to get around this rule all the time. Hey, I'm just going to run over to Mike's house. Yeah, no problem. Are the parents home? Yeah, 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 they're home. Well, I'll call. I'll just call to make sure. Well, okay. And that's when we had telephones. Everyone had a home telephone, and so they'd pick up the telephone, they'd call. Hey, are you going to be home? Yeah, are you going to be home the whole time? Well, no. Okay, thank you. Chris, you're not going over there. <laughs> Hated this rule. Didn't matter if it was a party or just after school. Like a lot of my friends' parents worked till 6 or 7 o'clock, so from like 3 to 6, all the friends would get together and hang out at the house where no parents were. Not me. I wasn't there. But what I will tell you about this, even though I probably gave them a hard time at the time of this and did not like this rule, almost every time one of my friends got into some kind of trouble, it was in that window of time. That three to six window where parents were home. That's when immorality happened. That's when underage drinking and smoking and drug use happen. That's when a lot of these behaviors that they were trying to protect me from happen. And some of those behaviors that were birthed in that three to six window carried consequences that some of my friends are still dealing with. They started smoking in that three to six window. They still are. They started drinking. They still are. They're addicted to drugs because it started right there. This is the very definition of I'm going to set up a boundary for you, 
to give you the best life possible. Not to take away your fun, not to take away your freedom, but to set you up for success. I truly believe that's what God wants for us. I really do. I really don't think God's up there and going, I am so holy and you are so not that if you do this, I'm so offended by that behavior. I I really don't think so. He created us with a flesh. I think he's saying, this is about you. This is about my protection on you. You don't have to fall victim to what all these other issues that people in this world are dealing with. If you live your life by these guidelines, you will have a long life. You will be set apart. You will be healthy. I will take care of you and I'm able to lead you and guide you in these moments way more than if you just cast off all moral restraints and live your life by whatever set of values you want to. Living by structure is important. Anyone who doesn't have structure, their life gets messy. I mean, think about even with this pandemic, how much more are people's lives messing? Domestic violence is up, drug use is up, um, depression, anxiety are up. Why? It's because our structure was taken away a little bit. We used to know we get up, we go to work, we come home from work, we have dinner, we do this, we go to bed, repeat. Now it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do today. And when left to ourselves long enough without structure, most people can't handle it. And so God is just trying to give us a little bit of structure in our lives. He doesn't ask much, honestly. It's not that much. Let's look at verse 17. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is so powerful. This truth is so powerful because what Jesus is saying is instead of partaking in the religious feasts of these pagan priests and priestesses, Instead of getting in trouble over there with them, you can feast on the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. That's what he talks about in John. I am manna from heaven. I am the bread of life. We get to walk with Christ. We get to know him. The word is the manna from heaven. We got the word of God, the truth that's in this book. We have access to it. And on top of that, and back in the day, a white pebble, when, when someone gave you a white pebble, what it was used for, it was used for casting a vote of not guilty. So you would have these pebbles, and if you were judge and jury, and you had to cast a vote, you would put the white pebble, white pebble out for not guilty. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. When you come to me, you get this not guilty verdict. Here's the white pebble, and on top of that, what it means is you have a new name and a new inheritance. 
You are a son. You are a daughter of the living God with a whole new inheritance, a white pebble, not guilty verdict. That's what we have. So much better than what these false religions can offer. And that's what the book of Revelation is trying to say to the church of Pergamum. And that's why when Pastor Tony says we can know what the Spirit would be saying to us today, it's the same message. This is a powerful message to us. We're having the same debates they had years ago. Nothing's changed, but now's the time. Now's the time to feed on God's word and his truth more than ever. Now's the time to walk intimately with our Father. And if there was a practical application to this message, it would be just that. Feast on the manna from heaven, the word of God, the truth of God's word, and be intimate with our Father. See, God wants, he broke it all down. He sent Jesus for intimacy with us, for relationship. It's not rules. It's not a set of mandates. It's about relationship with us. And from that relationship, our lives are changed and transformed to be more like our Father so we can walk with him. Intimacy with God is the key. Notice I didn't just say spiritual disciplines like prayer, reading scripture. I know a lot of people who pray, who read scripture, but they lack intimacy with the Father. It's different. Intimacy is defined as this, close familiarity or friendship, closeness. Because when you have intimate moments with the Father, that's when you get his heartbeat. You, grow, you, you draw so close to him that you understand his ways and his heart. Intimacy, you know that. The, think about the people you're closest with. I can look at my wife's face right now and know exactly what she's thinking. She's more nervous right now than I am up here, trust me. <laughs> We're so close, I know by a look on her face, what she's about to say, what she's thinking, what's going on in her heart. When we're in a conversation, I can look at her and know exactly what's going on in there. She can do the same to me. That's intimacy, that's closeness. That's what God gave everything for us to have and that's the call in the book of Revelation. It's not you're so bad, you're so evil, I'm coming in judgment for you, that's not the call. The call is you've got out there a little bit and it's easy to do because of the culture we live in. It's easy to get caught up in the flesh, to get caught up in some of these practices, to look at other people and say, man, not everyone, they they can't all be wrong. Just to love and accept. I mean, I wish that's what we want more than anything. But God is making a call to his church. I gave everything to be with you. I gave my son so that you don't have to deal with what they're dealing with. You've got me. You've got intimacy with me. 
You don't ever have to be separated from me again. That is powerful, church. That our sin, our shortcomings, our flesh, they don't separate us from God. We can turn back towards him at any moment and walk intimately with him. I love what Paul says in Philippians, and I'm going to close with this. The Apostle Paul, one of the most incredible characters of the Bible when you really look at his life. Here is a guy who had it all according to religious tradition. He was a Pharisee. He was famous. He was well known. He had it all. He lived his life by a moral code. He knew all the 600 and some odd laws but he didn't have intimacy with the Father. He actually persecuted those who did. And then one day, God got a hold of his life. And this guy got completely transformed. And this is what he says. I, and I love this. He says, all of, my that I, all of my accomplishments that I once took credit for, I've now forsaken them, and I regarded all as nothing compared to the delight of experiencing Jesus Christ as my Lord. To truly know him meant letting go of everything from my past and throwing all my boasting on the garbage heap. It's all like a pile of manure to me now so that I may be enriched in the reality of knowing Jesus Christ and embrace him as Lord in all of his greatness. Listen to this last line. My passion is to be consumed with him. Wow. This was what the call to the church was all about in the book of Revelation, the church of Pergamum. Pergamum, sorry, not Pergola. It was a call to not be religious, but to know God, to know him intimately, to be close with him, to walk with him, to study his word, to not get caught up in the culture, but go deeper than you've ever gone with him, to be consumed with him. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for this powerful letter and how even though it was written thousands of years ago, it still so applies to us today. I thank you for the truth the richness that's found in your word when you dive deep into it. But Father, I pray it wouldn't just be words on a page, but it would transform our heart and the way we live our lives. That we would grow close to you and have intimate moments with you, that you would lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.